From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Property taxes are about to soar, so the governor and legislature sent a relief measure to voters, which they'll decide this fall. But the underlying issue is that living in Colorado costs too much. Today, our regular conversation with Governor Jared Polis. I'll also ask about his recent vetoes. Are they a sign he and the Democratic legislature are out of step? Later, discord within the state GOP. And Colorado bluegrass band the infamous String Dusters pays tribute to the genre's earliest days, which weren't that long ago. It really is a relatively short history. I mean, bluegrass has only been around since the mid-1940s. Out of nowhere, this amazing new genre was formed, but never really was that popular. It's thriving now, especially in Colorado. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis isn't on the ballot in November, but a property tax relief measure he cares a lot about is Proposition HH. The finer points are Byzantine, and he's gotten pushback for the mechanism at the heart of it. We wondered what his elevator pitch is to voters. Opposite elevator arriving. So we asked Polis to meet us in the basement of the state capitol. Governor, let's step into the elevator, hear your pitch for HH. Okay, let's do it. You have till the third floor. Yeah, there we go, pushing the button. So um, I think it's the best chance Colorado voters have to significantly reduce your property tax rate. Uh, Home values have gone up the last few years. That's good if you happen to own a home, but unfortunately, uh, the side effect is that your property taxes would also go up. So what this bill will do is it'll take $50,000 off the value of every property for tax purposes, so knock it down 50 grand, and it'll also reduce the rate. It has the added advantage of also reducing the rate for businesses across the state for commercial property tax to help make Colorado more competitive, more of that money should go into salaries, help attract new businesses to our state, uh, and finally create a mechanism to prevent these large property tax increases in the future called truth in taxation which caps future increases at the rate of inflation, requires a vote by the jurisdiction, the fire district, the school district, if they want to go above that. Well, here we are, third floor. Let's step off. Great, let's do it. All right, at the round table in your office now, Governor, indeed Prop HH would reduce property tax rates, but because those values are rising so fast, tax bills would probably still go up. That said, there is opposition to this measure, chiefly from a conservative group called the Advanced Colorado Institute. Its president, Michael Fields, has this question for you. Governor, in 2019, voters rejected Proposition CC, which would have ended Tabor tax refunds permanently. Last year, you made a big deal about sending $750 Tabor refund checks to every taxpayer. According to the nonpartisan Legislative Council, Prop HH would take as much as $10 billion in Tabor refunds over the next 10 years. So why do you support it when the legislature can fix this problem without touching Tabor at all? 
Yeah, because we have such a strong economy, we have a strong surplus, which is wonderful. And so what Prop HH does is it cuts property tax and it uses some of the surplus to what we, the word we use is backfill, meaning we're going to make sure that school budgets aren't slashed, that fire district budgets aren't slashed. So by cutting property taxes ordinarily, remember the state doesn't get those property taxes. They go to your local district. So that's the key thing people need to understand. If we were slashing money that came to the state, it would be easier in a sense. We just say we want less revenue, but we're not. It's library districts, it's fire districts, it's uh, water districts, it's school districts. And so what we're saying is, yes, we're going to slash the property tax rate, but we're going to use some of the healthy surplus we have from the record strong economy to backfill some of that. Advance Colorado and several governments have sued to block this. So far, the courts have ruled in your favor. But I I do want to ask about the critique at the center of the lawsuit. Critics say this is not just a property tax measure, but that it takes aim at the taxpayer's bill of rights, those Tabor refunds. Some Democrats have argued for a long time that those refunds should go away forever. Is that part of the agenda here? Is this a weakening of Tabor? Well, so far, the courts have have ruled in favor of simply allowing voters this choice to cut your property taxes and get rid of half the increase in your property tax as well. And then, of course, as I said, what this initiative also does, which I think makes it more attractive to voters, is say, yes, we can cut property taxes, but you also, voters, generally speaking, don't want to slash the budgets of your school districts, your library districts, your fire districts. So how do we do both? And the answer is we have record surpluses. Let's use some of those surplus funds to make sure that we can reduce taxes and partially backfill many of those entities so they don't have to slash their budget and the services that they offer. It is as if you are expressly avoiding the word Tabor when I ask you about it. Uh, no, I, we, that's I, part of the equation did, here. Did, so it's address- a, did surplus is defined as the revenues above the Tabor limits. So that is the surplus. And it's up to the people of Colorado how they use those funds uh, in this initiative. And this would say, why don't we use part of those funds to make sure that while we cut property taxes to save people money, we're not at the same time slashing school district and fire district budgets. I want to note that local governments could still voluntarily cut their own mill levies or property tax rates under this. How many do you think would do that? And so have- I, want to, I want to salute some that have. Colorado Mountain College has... Uh, slashed their property tax increment. Uh, I thank them for that. I would call on every public jurisdiction to reduce their property tax rate. This should not have to be the job of the state legislature. This should be the job of the taxing districts. Because they haven't acted, we took action uh, and put this on the ballot to reduce uh, the property tax rate. But uh, in addition, I also signed a bill that makes sure that if they do voluntarily slash their property tax rates, that won't be held against them for taper purposes in the future, meaning if we have a period of time where property values stagnate or go down, uh, if they have to keep their revenue stable, they could float their rate back up. So that was important. Uh, I hope that leads to more local jurisdictions uh, voting to slash their property tax rates. And part of this initiative is the truth in taxation piece to Prop HH, which means that going forward, they can't automatically keep money above the rate of inflation. It's capped at the rate of inflation, and they have to proactively vote as a democratically elected board if they want to blow through that cap. And that makes it more likely they'll cut their rates in the future. The ballot language is more than 50 words. The bill the legislature passed with the finer points is 48 pages. Um, I asked you to make that elevator pitch earlier because this is you know, really quite complex. How much time will you spend personally 
out on the trail promoting HH. What's the strategy? So, and I encourage people, the full text and summary will be in the blue book people get in the mail prior to the election. Obviously, the ballot summaries are more of the concise version. Um, The more people learn about it, I, I think the more there is to like. One example is this initiative makes the senior homestead tax exemption portable. So this is a senior homestead tax exemption, knocks $200,000 for tax purposes off the home for seniors who've lived in their home for, I think it's 20 years or more. But in the past, and even through now, you lose that if a senior sells their home, downsizes to apartments. So you have this perverse incentive where if a senior chooses to downsize, they actually could pay more in property taxes. And, and for a senior on a fixed income, that's not an equation that works. And so many seniors are forced to stay in the houses that they raise their families that are too large, even if they'd rather downsize simply because their property values would go up. This makes it transferable, meaning you can take that tax advantage with you to your downsized apartment or home, freeing up your old home for a new family. Uh, and I think there's a lot in this for people who want to make sure that property taxes don't increase more than we can afford to pay. Prop HH exists to benefit homeowners. But I want to talk about renters because in years where there would be a Tabor surplus, their refunds would get hit too. But with very little benefit, something like $20 million total towards a tenant protection program. There are a lot of renters in this state. So what's in it for them? Why would they reduce their Tabor surplus. Well, as a a standard practice, landlords pass along expense increases like rent increases to their tenants. Uh, I've very few landlords out of the goodness of their heart simply absorb additional costs. Uh, Those are passed along. And I would add they're passed along formally in the lease for small businesses that have triple net leases. It's a direct pass through to your local store and, and your local business. For residential, it's usually an indirect pass through. When costs go up for Uh, The landlord, as I said, very few of them absorb that. They generally pass that along to tenants and rents go up. So you think that that will be, well, it'll be a lack of a passing on. This will reduce the size of rent increases for Coloradans. Again, as you indicated, property taxes still in many places, it depends where you are, still might go up. And that's likely to be passed along to renters, but they won't go up nearly as much if Prop HH passes. Without HH, the typical homeowner in Colorado indeed faces a 20, maybe 30 percent increase in taxes. Are values so high, Governor, partly because it is so difficult to add housing stock in this state? That's part of the equation. So Prop HH would cut that property tax increase in half, which is a good first step. But the underlying issue is that living in Colorado costs too much. I mean, that's the fundamental issue. No matter what relief you provide on the tax side, uh, rents are high, and the average price to purchase a new home in Denver metro area is over $600,000, Colorado Springs metro over $480,000. So homeownership is becoming out of reach for too many Coloradans, and we really need to take action to change that to make sure that Colorado is a place where people can afford to live. You're hearing our regular conversation with Governor Jared Polis at the state capitol. We'll stick with this theme of affordability after a break. Why do you veto a bill meant to make apartment buildings more attainable? And later, steps Colorado has taken to reduce gun violence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the new episode of My Story So Far, Pride on the Western Slope. One of the only spaces where I could explore my queerness openly. Um, I describe it as like a very dusty breakfast club. (laughs) My Story So Far, everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to the state capitol for our regular interview with Democratic Governor Jared Polis, recorded Tuesday. And let's stick with this theme of housing affordability. 
You sought to tackle housing affordability in this year's legislative session with a land use package that ultimately failed. But the legislature did pass a bill giving cities the right of first refusal to buy apartment buildings to convert to affordable housing. That is a bill you vetoed. Why did that bill not fit into your vision? Well, bills that further restrict the market generally increase the cost of rent, the cost of purchase. Uh, One part of our land use package that did pass is a bill that prohibited growth caps and basically cities saying no new housing in our city, which was driving up costs. So that is now illegal in the state of Colorado. But yes, we need to do more about ending exclusionary zoning, uh, allowing homes to be built that people can afford, which are often duplexes, quadplexes, accessory dwelling units. These are kind of the most affordable inventory. And very specifically, they're not allowed to be built in much of our state. On that bill about right of first refusal, I think I heard you say that you thought it was a restriction that would not. Well, this was. Yeah. So this was a bill we could talk about. It it doesn't it wasn't about new housing. It was about when uh, certain units are sold. And I think the units were had to be built before a certain date and of a certain size. But basically think old apartment buildings that when they're sold, there would be kind of delays that were introduced to that process that would, uh, I guess, theoretically give cities more of a chance to buy those apartments if they want them, but they can buy them now on the open market, which is the part that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, if a property is listed, just as anybody can buy it, a city can buy it. The truth is most cities don't have all the money in the world to buy these units. But what we really need, of course, is to end exclusionary zoning and allow more of the units that people can actually afford to live in to be built. Now, that includes apartments, And part of what we need to do on land use is to make sure that we have transit-oriented development with multifamily and apartments that can be built near transit so people can easily access bus, rail, uh, not have to have a car unless they want one. And that adds the affordability aspect as well. So you thought that this bill in particular was unnecessary? Uh, well, more than unnecessary, it's uh, counterproductive in the sense that it, uh, when you add delays to buildings being purchased and sold, it can actually lead to preventing and providing a disincentive for the construction of new housing stock. Um, this one only applied to old housing stock, but certainly had it become law, people would have built in a risk factor in looking at new housing stock. Hey, what if the state does the same thing in, in 10 or 20 years and makes it so I have all these difficulties ever selling this apartment building that I'm building? On the subject of vetoes, you also nixed a bill dealing with online ticket sales. Democratic State Senator Robert Rodriguez said, I think the governor had a decision between local venues and ticket scalpers, and I think he went with ticket scalpers. Is that what happened in your view? Well, I think that's obviously an incorrect characterization. This was opposed by every consumer group. I mean, my North Star is always, is it good for the general public, consumers, fans? This is for musical concerts, for sports events. Every, uh, there's, you know, three main consumer advocacy groups. They all said this is bad for consumers, restricts choice. There's good elements of the bill. I encourage Senator Rodriguez and others to work on the elements to help reduce fraud in this space, uh, including deceptive URLs that can make people think they're getting a ticket from the original source when they're not. But the answer is not to put these major restrictions in place that only benefit big business and work to the detriment of fans and consumers. One more bigger picture question on vetoes. You had 10 of them this year. That's the most by any governor since 2006. 
Is there an ideological rift opening between you and your Democratic colleagues who dominate the legislature? Well, we focus on quality of veto, not quantity. I'm certainly proud of each one that we, we had. Every bill that passes, and there were 473 bills, me and my team review. Uh, we do a legal analysis. We do a policy analysis uh, and make a decision about whether it's in the best interest of the state or not. Obviously, individual legislators represent different districts. They vote on things. Uh, I'm the sort of check for the general public. I represent the entire state of Colorado, elected by the state of Colorado. I have to make the decision on balance, is this good or bad for the state? And we look at each bill individually, and I make that assessment to the best of my ability. You're a Democrat. The legislature is in Democratic hands. If you are vetoing that number of bills, is there a breakdown in communication? Is there a fundamental difference of opinion? What does it say about the communication you're having with another branch? Well, I think it's actually a, it's a lower number of bills, for instance, of bills that the Democratic House passed that die in the Democratic Senate or the Democratic Senate passes that die in the House. So there's three, you know, there's two legislative chambers and an executive that takes all of those to make a law a reality. So just as the House is autonomous from the Senate, governor's obviously autonomous. The other two bodies are composed of lots of folks, Democrat, Republican. Um, I'm one person. But uh, for a bill to become law, it needs to pass the Senate, the House, and uh, needs to be signed by the governor. I can also not act. It becomes law eventually if I anyway. I feel like I'm watching Schoolhouse Rock, Governor. <laughs> uh, so you don't think of this as a sign that there is perhaps a lack of communication or coordination or being on the same page with your fellow Democrats? Well, I, I think if it was like, you know, two or three hundred vetoes out of 473, that would be one thing. I think I saw that a Democratic governor um, uh, of a state with Republican state legislature vetoed over 100 bills. So, I mean, you know, if it gets up to where we're vetoing hundreds of bills each session, that's one thing. But if it's 30 or 40 or 10, I mean, that's just we're looking at each individual bill and some are good and some are bad. And I sign the good ones and I veto the bad ones. I want to talk about gun violence, and I'll acknowledge the mass shooting that took place early Tuesday morning in downtown Denver. The legislature passed a bill that has to do with school attacks. The law provides for bleed kits and stop the bleed training for schools. Is that a Band-Aid or a tourniquet? On a much bigger issue. Well, I, I certainly support that law, but that's not the, mar the marquee public safety laws that we passed this session. The, the biggest thing we did that I think will improve school safety is you have to be 21 to purchase a gun in Colorado now. So 18-year-olds uh, uh, were able to legally purchase guns. Uh, now it's age 21. It's always been 21 for pistols, but it was 18 for rifles. Now it's 21 regardless of the class of arms. Uh, we also added a three-day waiting period for that purchase. So, I mean, of course, um, we support making sure we have more medical assistance needed where we can, but um, I think these other measures will absolutely help reduce gun violence in the school settings. We're bordered by many other states with looser gun laws, and for some folks in Colorado, that might be a 10-minute drive. How effective can a state-specific gun law be? Yeah, I, I think we need to do more nationally. I think the lowest hanging fruit would be universal background check on all purchases um, nationally because you could be a convicted felon in Colorado unable to buy a gun. You can go to an open-air gun show in Wyoming, uh, you know, maybe, as you said, 10 minutes for some Coloradans, but for most Coloradans, maybe an hour and a half or two, uh, and you can purchase several weapons without a background check. Uh, so it's better when we do these things together. 
there was a bipartisan gun violence package that President Biden signed that I supported, but I absolutely think they can do more, especially around universal background checks. And so what is the effect of state-level laws? If federal action is better, what, what are the state-level laws accomplishing? Well, so, I mean, again, talk about raising the age of 21 makes it a lot harder for an 18-year-old or 19-year-old to get their own gun. By the way, we didn't do anything that interferes with, you know, hunting with your parents if you're 17 or 16 or 18. I mean, you can use their guns, no issue. This is about going into a store and saying, I want a gun and walking out with one. It is now going to be much more difficult for an 18 or 19-year-old to do that. And, of course, there's many 18 and 19-year-olds that are in high school. The state's largest city, where we sit now, Denver, has just elected a new mayor, Mike Johnston. He used to be a state senator in this building. Have you spoken with him since his victory? I have. Um, talked to Mike. I've known him for uh, many years, and, and uh, he's a friend, and I'm going to be getting together with him again shortly. But yeah, I think the state is a very important partner with our major cities. I've, I went to Mayor Yemi's inauguration in Colorado Springs and uh, have met with him as well and, and look forward to working with all of our mayors in cities across Colorado and moving Colorado forward. Did Johnston ask anything of you? Did you ask anything of him? Uh, well, there's a lot of areas that we work on with Denver. Um, we identified some of the areas that he and his team will need to work on. Obviously, in Denver, for instance, they are uh, the front line in addressing uh, migrants from uh, the southern border, and so he'll have to work on his strategy for that. The state has some funding available around homeless, and uh, we don't ourselves deploy that. We deploy it through cities and NGOs. And so we encourage Mike Johnston to really put together compelling proposals that obviously the city also invests in, but the state could be a co-investor hmm. in achieving his goal of ending homelessness in Denver, something that I strongly support and hope that he can accomplish and hope that we can help him accomplish. Johnston will have some big responsibilities. Usually that includes the announcement we hear on the DIA train welcoming people to Denver. But uh, given that the Nuggets have won the NBA championship, should Jokic get to do the greeting? Go Nuggets! Uh, well, you know, uh, being true to himself, it's something that he would probably reject the opportunity to do. Uh, uh, <laughs> he might have to file it from uh, Serbia. But it would be nice to extend that to him. But I think it's great. You know, what a great championship. I mean, the Monday night game was just amazing to watch, especially the final few minutes. I mean, just the suspense uh, in the air. Absolutely incredible. It's an exciting time for Denver and for Colorado and for, for Nuggets fans everywhere. Governor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat, speaks with us regularly at the state capitol. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as the state Republican Party eats its own. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting about the environment in and affecting Colorado. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Political parties tend to protect their own. Unless a politician has really erred, party leaders tend to stand behind them. 
So when the head of the Colorado GOP sent emails recently attacking one of his members of Congress, our public affairs team noticed. CPR reporters Benta Berkland and Caitlin Kim are going to tell us what's going on. Welcome to both. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. The emails in question go after longtime Congressman Doug Lamborn of El Paso County. Uh, what is the state party chair unhappy about, Benta? Well, the new GOP party chair is Dave Williams. He's a former state lawmaker from Colorado Springs. And in one fundraising email titled, Fake Conservatives Sell You Out, Williams blasts Lamborn for his vote to support the debt ceiling bill. Oh. And that was a measure brokered by the Republican House Speaker and President Joe Biden. Williams accuses Lamborn of being deceptive and breaking his word to increase the national debt. And also, uh, Williams called out Lamborn for not signing on to his letter about space command and abortion policy. Basically, the Colorado GOP wrote to President Biden to say if abortion policy plays a role in where the headquarters should be located, then the party would rather see it go to Huntsville, Alabama, which goes against what all the congressional, state, and local leaders in both parties have been working towards, which is keeping Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs. Mm. Evidently, the chair feels so strongly about these issues that he's willing, indeed, to criticize his own, Benta. Yeah, that's right. And it's important to note that this email and these emails are coming from the head of the Republican Party. It may not represent the views of all of the members of the state party. And for some Republicans who've known Williams for a long time, this type of combative approach and public fight isn't surprising. Oh. Um, and I would also say that when Williams ran to be the to that be the head of the GOP, he said he would do this. He pledged not to be another quote timid politician. He said he'd be a conservative fighter, and he views part of his role as calling out other Republicans who he feels have not remained true to conservative principles and in his eyes are hypocritical. Caitlin, it's worth noting that Williams tried to unseat Lamborn last year. That's correct. You know, last spring, Williams challenged Lamborn in the GOP primary uh, for the 5th Congressional District seat in uh, Colorado Springs, El Paso County, along with two other candidates. And, you know, there were a lot of accusations flying back and forth between the Williams and the Lamborn camps, you know, lying about records, these are both anti-abortion candidates, and they were each accusing the other of supporting legislation that would help Planned Parenthood. Williams even tried to have the Lamborn campaign criminally investigated for allegedly making false statements about him. You know, all in all, it wasn't pretty. Okay, so there is a history between these two men. What do people make of this, I don't this beef? <laughs> Some of the longtime consultants and people I've talked to who've been involved with Republican politics for a while were critical of this approach, and they said they didn't see how these kinds of divisions would help build up the party or help the GOP win seats. Dick Wadhams was the GOP party chair for two terms more than a decade ago, and he said he can't think of a time when a party chair has been critical of a sitting member of Congress or any GOP elected official to this extent. And for Wadhams, it doesn't bode well. He's there with his own agenda. He's not there to, to elect Republicans across the board. Republican candidates apparently are going to be required to meet his very narrow MAGA stolen election conspiracy agenda, or they will be attacked by him. 
Have y'all been able to ask Williams why he's doing this? And does Lamborn have a response? You know, um, Ryan, I asked Lamborn about this last weekend, and his response three times was no comment. Now, Williams did send us a written comment about um, where, you know, a written comment where he said, look, this is what he was elected to do. You know, Colorado GOP voters want him to, quote, advance our grassroots platform while helping to stop wayward elected Republicans from aiding and abetting radical Democrats, unquote. Now, ultimately, Williams thinks establishment Republicans have sold out conservative values and weaken the party brand. Now, I am going to point out that one criticism I have heard from others was that Williams was elected chair by the people who had the time and inclination to actually go to the Republican reorganizing meeting in March. They're the hardcore activist wing of the party that might not represent, as Benta said, the other elements of the Republican Party in Colorado. Fascinating. I guess one person's compromise is another person's aiding and abetting. Um, This comes as the GOP has less power at the state capitol than any time in Colorado history. I mean, uh, speaking federally, both U.S. senators are Democrats. Only three of the eight House members are Republicans. And on top of that, the Colorado Sun has reported the party this spring was close to broke and didn't appear to have any employees on payroll. You know, that, that's right, Ryan. The last campaign finance filing, which covered all of April, show no payroll for the committee staff, whereas the month before, in March, they were giving salaries for the chair, the political director, the executive director, so on and so forth. And, like, look, the party needs money. You know, they are down fundraising-wise compared to the state Democratic Party. And if you want to be cynical about it, which I'm about to be, you know, being combative can help raise money. And Ryan, I do think it's fair to say the party is at a critical juncture and Republicans have been for a while. And there are certainly vast differences in the approach the GOP should take to try to regain some power in the state. Some people believe the party should take a more moderate tack to try to appeal to unaffiliated voters, while others, and Williams among them, argue the GOP needs to instead move farther to the right to rally the base, energize voters, and go on even more offense against Democrats. Well, thanks to both of you for the reporting. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. You heard Benta Berglund and Caitlin Kim. They are on CPR's public affairs team. Colorado's new alert system for missing indigenous people seems to be working. In the six months since its launch, 15 people have been found safely. But as CPR's Matt Bloom reports, there are still some things to work out. On a Saturday morning around 8 a.m. in May, a group of about a dozen people gathered in a circle in a vacant Littleton Strip Mall parking lot. I wanted to set the intention that we're going out to do this in a good way so that we can bring Raquel home to you and go from there. Raven Payment kneels in the center as she lights a piece of sage on fire. She's part of a grassroots group of Native women that help coordinate search parties like this one. We'll find the happy ending at the end of the rainbow. Earlier this year, Colorado launched a new statewide system to blast out alerts specifically to help in situations like this, when Native people go missing. The state's Bureau of Investigation started pushing the bulletins, kind of like Amber Alerts, out on social media, highway signs, and local media stations. And it's worked. Families have started to find relatives more quickly. And now, groups like the one gathered here are using it in tandem with ground searches. 
Raven Payment says that it's helped a lot. In a lot of cases, too, we've seen where the alert goes out and a person is located um, within the next 24 hours. The subject of today's alert is Raquel Morigo-Reen. The 24-year-old came to Denver from her home in Montana this spring to check herself into rehab for fentanyl addiction. A few weeks later, she met a man, and together they left rehab and started using again. She hasn't been heard from for a few weeks, says her mother, Kelly Reen. Raquel um, is a very kind person and friendly. Kelly is here unboxing a stack of paper printouts of her daughter's alert to hang up around town. She's grateful for the alert going out, but it took a little longer than she hoped, about 12 hours after she reported Raquel missing to the Denver Police Department. Plus, no one from law enforcement showed up today. I wish there was a better turnout, but, you know, all we can do is go, um, go look and move on. Denver police say they usually don't participate in grassroots search parties and that they issue the alerts as fast as they can. It seems like it has heightened the public's awareness. Lieutenant Richard Labor is with DPD's Missing Persons Unit. He says communication hiccups delayed some of the alerts earlier in the rollout, but now it's a smoother process. It's an automatic trigger um, with our computer system. Um, if they're entered in as, as indigenous, then it just basically alerts CBI. CBI is Colorado's Bureau of Investigations, which handles all statewide missing person alerts. Audrey Simpkins is an investigative analyst who oversees the alerts. In an ideal world, as soon as the person goes missing, and maybe you've looked for them and you can't locate them, that report needs to be made to law enforcement immediately, as soon as you can. In the case of Raquel Reem, the alert was active for about a week before the day of the family's ground search. They searched a train station, and at a Motel 6, a friend had told them that she might be staying at. Kelly Reem, her mom, says she finally got a call from Raquel later in the day. And she was safe. Uh, apparently she was in, um, she was hiding in a tent downtown. A police officer was doing a search of the alleyway and asked for her ID. And I'm thankful it ended up being an officer had ran into her and ran her name. The officer didn't offer to give Raquel a ride anywhere, though, which meant her family had to wait to get a location for Raquel to pick her up. That doesn't sit well with Raven Payment, one of the advocates who organizes search parties. Um, I would love to see a more robust response um, with law enforcement and other advocates to you know, once that person is found, make sure they don't go missing again or that they're not at risk for further violence. Native people go missing at least once a week in Colorado, according to data collected by advocates. Payment says the alert should help gather even more information about why Native people go missing at such high rates. She's also hopeful a new office dedicated to solving cases of missing Indigenous people in Colorado will grow if a new bill to do just that is signed by the governor. Eventually, we'll be taking a more proactive approach and um, preventing crisis and preventing violence as opposed to just reacting to it after the fact. The alert is progress, Payment says, but it's just one piece of a solution to a much bigger crisis. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News. And Denverite's Desiree Matherin contributed to that report. Read their story at denverite.com. Okay, when we come back, a bluegrass band, the infamous String Dusters, celebrates the genre's past and its promise. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late summer, male deer, elk, and moose are often seen with red shreds and ribbons hanging from their antlers. It's not necessarily the result of a gory fight. Instead, they're peeling off the velvet that coats spring antlers. 
Velvet is actually skin, complete with blood vessels to carry nutrients to growing antlers, the fastest growing bones in existence. On elk, they grow an inch a day. Moose can gain as much as a pound of antler every day. During the rut, the rattle of antlers echoes in Colorado forests and mountains. After breeding, bucks and bulls shed the heavy racks they no longer need to move a little more easily as they turn their attention to grazing enough to make it through the winter. Look for shed antlers on your next hike in the woods and keep your eyes open even wider for a glimpse of an animal with the rarest antlers in all the West, the legendary jackalope. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How would you feel if you were to read from your teenage journals on stage in front of a crowd? Mortified, maybe? Well, that is precisely what happens at events nationwide called Mortified. And this month, the Denver chapter is putting on a show for Pride. And I will be on stage reading from my adolescent musings. As a closeted gay kid, I wrote in code made up of letters from languages I'd studied, primarily Hebrew and Japanese. I'll decode my entries and share how much I pined for a boyfriend next Thursday, June 22nd at Denver's Oriental Theater. Tickets are at getmortified.com. That's getmortified.com. I've also contributed to a Spotify playlist of music I was listening to at the time, including this hit from the Cranberries. Rest in peace, Dolores. Well, planes aren't the only thing flying at Denver International Airport, as Jill Mullen has witnessed indoors. I guess I've just noticed birds a couple times, like when you're going into the security area or checking in, they'll be like kind of walking around or like flying up on those big tent pieces of the airport. But what she saw on her most recent trip made her reach out to us through Colorado Wonders. Mullen had flown home, arriving at DIA late at night. So the airport's just completely deserted. And you can hear these birds kind of chirping. And like there was one that was just hanging out on one of the banisters on those walkways that move really quickly. So I just, I love birds. And I was just a little concerned about what happens to them. Indeed, birds are regular visitors to DIA's terminal and its miles of concourses. Most of them are tiny, think sparrow-sized, Airport spokeswoman, Ashley Forrest. Birds come and go from the airfield. We have a lot of doors through all of the terminals and the jet bridges, so it's easy for them to come in. There is nothing that can also prevent them from coming into the airfield or into any of uh, the terminal or the concourses. On any day, we have birds in the area because our airport is actually near the central migratory flyway. So it's, it's pretty easy for them to get in, in and out of the airport. Of course, a lot of birds live full-time around the airport, but that flyway forest mentioned is a giant air route for those who pass through in the spring and fall. When they're on track, they rest a little in marshes and wetlands. 
when they happen into DIA, they encounter people and moving walkways and snacks. You'll often find them loitering near trash cans, seizing on french fries or crumbs from granola bars. DIA has a full-time team of professional biologists to monitor wildlife, but they spend most of their time outside, worried about bigger animals that could damage planes. They only help out inside if somebody spots a really unusual bird. So they are the ones who normally we work with to get any type of bird of prey out of the terminal, and then they are uh, necessarily taken to another area that is away from the airport. To Jill Mullen's concern about the little birds, DIA's Ashley Forrest says, You know, let nature be. You know, we have lots of doors opening, so nature sometimes comes through those doors. And they will leave those doors as well. What do you wonder about life in Colorado? Send your questions to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer them on air and online. Now, a musical milestone. The Telluride Bluegrass Festival gets underway tomorrow for its 50th year. Attendees are called Festivarians, and they nestle in the San Juan Mountains for four days, soaking in headliners and homegrown acts. This year's lineup includes the String Cheese Incident, Yonder Mountain String Bed, Gregory Allen Isakoff, and the infamous String Dusters. When I can't steal my restless mind Yeah, there's a place where I like to spend some time We caught up with String Dusters banjo player Chris Pandolfi of Denver, who remembers his inaugural Telluride performance. We were still based in Nashville. We probably had no gigs on the way and no gigs on the way home, but it didn't matter. It was worth it. But I remember barely sleeping because of the altitude, but also probably because I was so excited to get on stage. Pandolfi recalls being backstage, starstruck by Telluride mainstays like Sam Bush, Bela Fleck, and Jerry Douglas. These are the musicians who inspired us to play and got us into it. You've got all these legends walking around, you know, in shorts and sandals, and, you know, you're sitting down to eat dinner, and two chairs down is Robert Plant. But Pandolfi says the fans make the biggest impression. You go to play some festivals, and... You know, you're on at 2 p.m. and it's this dreaded early in the day slot. And is anyone going to be there? Of course, at Telluride, they sleep in a line, literally, so they can sprint in the moment they open the gates and throw their tarps down. So they're there before any of the artists are there. So we had an early slot. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope people are going to be there for this. And it was packed. They're so enthusiastic and supportive and they love the bands that they know, but they also go to Telluride to discover new bands. And that's part of sort of the soul of this event. I know that there are fans who have discovered us there, who have stuck with us through all the different things that we've done. So that's the goal when you go to a festival. And I think nowhere can you accomplish that better than at Telluride Bluegrass. 
In that vein, the String Dusters are introducing their younger fans to some of Bluegrass's oldest material. Their album, A Tribute to Flat and Scruggs, tips the hat to two of the genre's founding fathers, singer and guitarist Lester Flat and banjo extraordinaire Earl Scruggs. You may recognize their music from watching the old TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. The kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. The Beverly Hillbillies. Or The Car Chase in the 1967 film Bonnie and Clyde. While the duo's influence on the infamous String Dusters is immense, Chris Pandolfi believes many of his fans may not be too familiar and hopes this new album will serve as a history lesson. I don't think that the majority of them know about old school bluegrass. I think they probably know about Leftover Salmon and Yonder Mountain String Band, String Cheese Incident, some of the bands that really paved the way for what we're doing. But where this music actually came from is a different story. And it's interesting because it really is a relatively short history. I mean, bluegrass has only been around since the mid-1940s. 1946 is sort of widely recognized as the year that bluegrass began when Bill Monroe's vision met Earl Scruggs's banjo playing, Lester Flatt singing, and out of nowhere, this amazing new genre was formed, but never really was that popular. Members of the Dusters each brought their favorite Flat and Scruggs songs to the table. The signature instrumental, Earl's Breakdown, was a no-brainer for Pandolfi as the banjo player. Another favorite, Blue Ridge Cabin Home which features his vocals. I'm singing lead on Blue Ridge Cabin Home, which is sort of an anomaly for the string dusters, but I love to sing. I just was focused more on the instrumental stuff from early on, and we have four other guys in the band who are very passionate about singing, but they've uh, they've been kind and let me sneak in there with a few more vocals. There's a well-beaten path on this old mountainside where I Pandolfi reflected on the first time he heard a Flat and Scruggs record. He was in college, fairly new to his instrument. I remember taking that album back and slowing it down somehow using some software on the computer and like really starting to dissect these notes and just being knocked out by 
the rhythm of Earl's playing, and I heard something that I hadn't heard before, even though I was already really in love with the banjo and feeling so much inspiration, but I'll never forget when I got my first copy of Tis Sweet to be Remembered, it was sort of a, a game changer moment in my career. Tis sweet to be remembered on a bright or gloomy day. Earl Scruggs died in 2012, but not before Chris Pandolfi had the chance to see one of his banjo heroes. I did meet Earl. I met him a couple times, and Andy Hall, our Dobro player, actually played in Earl Scruggs's band, which is one of the coolest things ever. Pandolfi remembers being backstage at a festival out east. And Earl came in on a golf cart. Everyone in the whole area stopped what they were doing, stopped eating, stood up, and gave him, you know, a minutes-long ovation. And I get chills just thinking about it. You know, this is... This is a really special thing to be able to hear this legendary artist, to be able to experience his music up close and in person. And it's something that the younger pickers don't get to do these days and something that I don't take lightly. Because in the time that we've been professional musicians, we've seen those first generation guys, Ralph Stanley, Earl Scruggs, pass on. So when we started out playing, you could go to a festival and see Earl Scruggs, the guy who invented the music play. And that's a pretty heavy thing. And musicians coming up these days, they don't get to do that, you know. So it's our job to keep that music alive and keep that flame burning. And as I've said so many times, thankfully, it's burning as bright as it ever has right now. And perhaps nowhere brighter than at Telluride even as similar festivals pop up elsewhere. When we were starting out 16 years ago, a lot of these events didn't exist, but Telluride did. You're always going to see the new cool bands, the musicianship is off the charts, the integrity of the music. It's just such a special event. Down the road, down the road, got a little pretty gal down the road. about the view from stage and the energy in town and the energy amongst the fans who have really made an effort to get there because Telluride, Colorado is not an easy place to get to. But yet this festival sells out, you know, the minute it goes on sale every year. And now we're looking at the 50th year. And that's a long time for any music festival to be around. But Telluride is at the height of its power. Now every day in summer too I go to see my further blue Before you hear that rooster crow See me heading down the road Chris Pandolfi plays banjo for the infamous String Dusters. The band's new album, A Tribute to Flat and Scruggs, is out now. They perform at the 50th annual Telluride Bluegrass Festival with a special gospel set Sunday. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that keeps on plucking. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.